Welcome to the Kincast from Kinherit. We examine everyday challenges from running a business, self-development, and getting on the property ladder to dealing with loss, having a family, and preparing for our end of life. Practical and insightful, the Kincast series will take you through life's challenges from cradle to grave. It addresses the current climate while also looking to the future to see how we can survive and thrive. Hello and welcome. This is the Kincast. My name is Ben Mason and I'm joined today by Sam Oaks. Sam Oaks is a financial service professional in the recruitment side of the industry. He also runs the Financial Planner Life podcast, so is technically the opposition, but we don't have any opposition here. <laughs> we believe in collaboration in all forms. So Sam, great to have you on. We've got to know each other over the last year. I must say your tan is looking superb. Mm. Um, it's great to have you on and the hair the hair is looking um, luscious as well. Do you know what? I've embraced, um, I've embraced the lockdown look. Uh, I booked a haircut, um, but for a month's time. So I'm letting it, I'm continuing to let it grow. As, as for the tan, um, I don't know, naturally olive skinned perhaps? I don't know. I've been out, I've been out in it a bit. I went, weekend I was over in, um, I went down to Chesil Beach uh, for the weekend and camped on the beach and it was actually quite sunny. So, picked up a few rays down there but thanks for the compliments that's exactly why i needed 7 30 on a tuesday morning mate well mate no it's not a problem not a problem at all so um go on t- tell us about you I lo- what, what i love yeah. about what your business is is that you get um i, I know a lot of recruiting people I know a lot of great recruiting people i know a lot mm. of bad ones um and what you've managed to do is carve out a real niche and a real level of industry respect in what you do and getting that niche and that respect is really hard. So tell us a bit about um, about Recruit UK, how it came about. Okay, so um, I'm one of the directors of Recruit UK. So there's four directors, but um, I'm one of the one of the original owners, myself and Stuart, are 50-50 shareholders in the business. Um, prior to working in recruitment, I used to work for, um, I've done, I did lots of different jobs, the sales and customer service, all sorts of things really. I didn't get into recruitment until quite, quite late like 27 years old which in the world of recruitment is is quite um it's quite old really um prior to that i was i would say the job job before recruit uk was i was working for aviva um and at aviva i was a um i was a team leader but i was also a um like a trainer so i worked in the training department there training out um uh things like investment products bonds pensions having to get you know someone to understand at the time what a day was loads of little technical things that we used to sort of teach the customer service agents who were on the telephones to clients and customers uh, and financial advisors. So that was kind of about the extent of my experience of, of, of financial services and financial advisors. So I, I left Aviva because I wanted to pursue a career really that was going to pay me more money because however hard I worked within uh, a larger corporate, you weren't moving any further forward. And as time progressed, I would sneak out the door a little bit earlier and get in a bit later and, and do a little less work, but it didn't ever affect anything. And it didn't really sit well with who I was as a person. Cause I was like, well, if I'm going to put 110% in, I want 110% return back. And um, I just felt like a bit of a cog in the wheel in that respect. And um, as much as I learned a lot at Aviva and I did enjoy working there, it was a great company to work for. It just wasn't fulfilling me and my ambition, really. So everyone always said to me, Sam, you'd be a really great recruitment consultant. Um, and um, I just, just, it was just something I'd never really done. So 27 years old, I was out having a drink um, with a friend of mine. And 
I was whinging and moaning about my job, not earning enough money. And um, across the table, Stuart, who's now my, who's my business partner, handed me a business card and said, well, why don't you come in and have a chat with me on Monday? And um, I run a recruitment company. And at the time, this recruitment company was called, um, well, it was, a, it was Recruit UK, but it was an appointed representative of a company called um, Viridian. I don't know if you ever heard of Viridian, but they were a, a, you know, like a, a national financial services recruitment company. And they'd had a, an appoint, they, they had a branch in Bristol and Stuart was an appointed representative of, of, um, of Viridian. So I came in, had the interview and everything, got on really well and decided, right, okay, leave Aviva, get into recruitment. And that was just when the credit crunch happened. So literally as I walked through the door, um, the credit crunch happened. So Stuart had these accounts for me to work on because Viridian had relationships with all the major banks. So they were on what they call preferred supplier lists. So the idea was, you know, if you're an appointed representative of Viridian, you don't have to go out and do any business development because we've got loads of vacancies for you. And Stuart yeah, they, they, loaded... they've, done the, they've done the business development for you. Uh, yeah. The opportunities are there and all, they can't service the whole country. So they yeah. want someone to do it for them in the Southwest. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Stuart had a little business there that he'd taken on um, and he was starting to grow it. And he had some vacancies, obviously, with some of the major banks. And the idea was I was going to come in and start working on um, some of the accounts they've had quite a bit of success on. Credit crunch happened, um, and um, you know the, the banks clam, you know, clammed up, and um, you know, just didn't start recruiting anymore. And I think he turned white, you know, in front of me. I was like, mm, this ain't quite. This isn't <laughs> what I was hoping for. But I didn't understand recruitment anyway. And this is the beautiful thing: when you get into it, you don't have a clue anyway, do you? You got, you're going into a new job. You don't know what to expect. So for me, it was just like, right, I, I was ready. I knew that it was going to be really, really hard because all I ever heard was recruitment's hard you know you can get into it it's gonna be really really tough so in my mindset it was like it's gonna be hard anyway it's gonna to be tough and um i was we'd be busy we did a bit of business development anyway no vacancies were coming in it was getting quite tight and then a, then one vacancy came in this like part-time vacancy working for chelsea building society there was a guy in the office at the time called lee who, who won this business and he'd given me this part-time role in haywards heath for uh, for um, for Chelsea Building Society, and I worked my absolute socks off of, off of it. You know, they couldn't fill it for love nor money. That's why they gave it to us. And in the end, I ended up getting an offer accepted on it. And it was like a fee of about one thousand eight hundred pounds for me. It was, was part time maternity cover role, but that really kind of got me fired up for recruitment. And it got me to realize just how hard you had to work. And I was then starting to work with the client and listening to what they had to, 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 you know, in requirements and what they were looking for. And gradually I sort of built this in my first year, I built this Chelsea building, building society account up and did about 80 grand through it, um, which was really, really good. And, and then the bank started hiring again. And then I sort of got on the bandwagon and as time progressed, I became offered a, I, I got offered a directorship. So joint directorship, do you want to become a shareholder in the business and take on 50% of it and help me grow it? Um, and I took it. And um, I suppose over the last sort of 12 years, that's what I've been doing. You know, we took the name, we, we, we pulled away from Viridian because we didn't want to be part of Viridian anymore. We wanted our own brand. So when I came in, it was more about, right, okay, if I'm going to take ownership of this business and become a shareholder in it and become an owner, I'm going to want to, um, I'm going to want to build the brand. And that was where my sort of interest in that came from, really. So I started taking an interest in Recruit UK and then, right, okay, how are we going to build a business? And then I became instrumental in, in helping grow it. So, so how, bringing that, people sorry, in. How long, how long into, um, you, had, you had, grew the Chelsea Building site, so you started yeah. recruiting again. 
how long into you actually making the move with you and Stuart breaking away from when you started? Because I think it gives people the, not, not just you getting involved, gives people the idea of how long some of these things can take. Because I, yeah. the, the, I hate the line, oh, you're an overnight success. No, what you've noticed is I've been successful from more one day to the other. But actually there's overnight successes how usually have a two, three, four, 10 year working work time to get it to happen. Funny success. Cause um, it's difficult. It's, it is a tricky one. I think, um, I think people want success now, like want it instantly. And um, the one thing that I noticed around my success, it takes me, sometimes I have to stop and pause and reflect to see how successful I have been and where I have been successful because the success is like a gradual sort of steep climb. And it has been for me over, over the sort of 12 years. Um, and um, I suppose probably, I don't know, it's weird. I don't, it's very strange when asking me what success is, is, is it, or, or, or when was I successful and all of that. It's weird because I don't really, sit there and go how successful am i do you know what i mean it's just an ongoing journey that's that's a that's almost uh, like a an extension of 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 a question is that well you and i will both tell people oh look look look, there we are yeah mine's mine's in baby pastel blue yours in a in a a nice strong black no, what, what I mean more, more than the success piece, which we'll come on to in a second, and it's hard to define success because also it's littered with failures that we know we're having that other mm. people don't, which are just part of running a business. Like every week things go wrong in a business. Every week mm. it's like, well, that could have been better. That could have been better. But that's what business is. Business, I say to people, business is dealing with bumps in the road every day. Um, but no, when you, how long into the business till till you and Stuart went right? We we're, we're, we're going to work together, and now we're going to leave Viridian. We're going to go on our own because that that's a two, very probably big... two two or three years. We were gradually yeah. we sort of had one foot in Viridian, still receiving some of the vacancies, and then using our Recruit UK brand to business development outside of what they generated. So it was a, it was a kind of gradual progression. You sort of you know gradually you were. So I, the way it kind of worked was Viridian really only were dealing with the banks and, the, and, and that was it really. And not only was there the credit crunch, um, but also as well, there was the period where all the financial advice, um, retail distribution review. Yeah. So all the financial advice firms had to go back onto a fee-based model and the banks couldn't really cope with that. So what you, what you were looking at was we predicted and looked at it and thought, right, well, the banks are going to be kicking out all their financial advisors. We need to be finding a different world to, to yeah. place these people. So we moved away from the banks and we had Recruit UK and Recruit UK was then going out and working with IFAs, wealth management firms, the smaller, smaller independent firms, the self-employed market. So my job really, and with another chap who was there called John Anderson, was we pushed into that market. And so you had part of the business working the Viridian vacancies and then part of the, part of the business going off into the unknown. And that was what I did. So when we did that and we started getting out there and winning our own clients and receiving a hundred percent of the fee and not paying away a percentage to Viridian. And that was when we then thought, right, okay, we need to push the Recruit UK brand and ditch Viridian because they were a bit of a dying dinosaur. They weren't really listening to our, our thoughts around it either around stepping away from the banks. They weren't doing any business development. Their whole model was, was the banks, but their relationships have died, you know, and also the banks were starting to do their own recruitment in house. Which R- they... RDR was a, RDR was a 
I get why it happened, but again, so I people the FCA get a lot of criticism. Yeah, I think what the FCA do is largely really well intentioned. I just don't think it's often well executed or well rolled out. I think it could be what rolled out in in a, in a better way or executed in a better way. But that that's the that's the that's going to be the that's going to be the situation for any large governing body dealing mm. with companies where they've got from two thousand employees to one bloke in his shed. Like yeah. you know, that's always going to be very difficult. But yeah, RD, I remember when I was working for Zurich and we I was looking after I was looking after Lloyd, the Lloyd's account when I was at Zurich, and um, I was picking the phone to some some guy and he said, "Oh, probably not a good time now." We've, We've just been notified that there's going to be X amount of redundancies, and that was when it was obviously um, Lloyd's TSB, and it was just very, very difficult for them. I think I think they lost something like I want to say 30% of their in-house IFA arm just just went within a four or five week period, yeah. and then and then another sort of 20% went a little bit down the line. It was it was a real tough period through RDR. Yeah, it was. There's a lot of change happening. The problem was as well was when you were used to like recruiting for the banks, they were employed roles. Yeah. Um, and when RDR happened, there was there became a huge you know loads of loads of self-employed opportunities and no employed opportunities. You know, and it's been a gradual sort of increase in employed opportunities outside of those larger organisations, the banks. It's only gradually sort of starting to now be that kind of balance if you like between self-employed and employed because everyone was kicked out of the banks and then you had the likes of st james's place just going around with an asset hoover trying to hoover these guys up and mm. say oh come and join us and you know join us for 12 months we might give you a retainer or you had some of the other you know um networks just sort of offering self-employed so very very minimal opportunity to to move people like for like it was a, it was a battle at that period you know a really tough time which is why you saw so many people leave the industry as well um and from a recruitment perspective it was um it was tricky, you know, it was tough, you know, finding your feet in that environment was, was hard. Um, and obviously they went from like 200,000 odd advisors down to about 30,000 advisors as well. Yeah. Um, I've got, I've got a little bugbear about, about the quality of advice. There was, there was, there was a lot of poor advisors out there that weren't yeah. giving great advice. I spoke to some of them on the phone and some of the things they would say and met some of them. So, but no one ever needs to know some of the, ridiculous things that came out of their mouths but then there were also a lot of good guys that got lost that were probably the back end of their career and they were like can't be bothered with it i know one guy went from he said oh, he had three years left he just sold his book and went and went and, and said i'm gonna go and drive a lorry for two years so i don't dip into my savings and he was a really good advisor a yeah. really good person and and always had the best interest of his clients so I think along the way of some of the, the non-rubbish getting cut out, which was, I still think was a large part of why they did it. I think a large part of why they did it was to trim out some of the bad advisors. I think, um, and, and it was to, needed to be done in a way, but I think they also lost some real good ones along, the, along there that just didn't want to, that didn't want to change everything in their business model for just 12, 18, 24 months. Yeah. Yeah, and there was a lot of companies, obviously, that had a really good fee-based model anyway. So to them, it was like a blessing, wasn't it? It was like, oh, brilliant, the market's caught up with us. Yeah, yeah. there was a lot of, same in any industry, isn't it? There's a lot of dross, um, so we separate the wheat from the traff. But it was, um, yeah, it was an interesting, that was, a, that was an interesting time. So there was that kind of, so yeah, I suppose like 
in answering your question about that point, that tipping point, yeah, like three years in, uh, maybe two and a half, three years in, I became a, I became a 50% shareholder. Then it was that breaking away. Then thinking to ourselves, right, if we're going to do it, let's build our own business. And, and, and that was that then, you know, it was like, right, we're off in the unknown. You know, we're, we're having to build a business and then we start trying to hire people into our own business and I was part, you know, instrumental in that. Um, so I had a real kind of interest in bringing people in, interviewing them. And then I would have somebody sat with me and they'd take over part. So I would like look at myself and break down what I was doing and start bringing people in to help support me. And that's what gradually then grew that that business a little bit bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, somebody would do business development. Somebody would do lead generation. You know, ultimately what I was trying to do was at least least amount of work possible for <laughs> the, biggest, the biggest return, you know, because 360 recruitment is quite a big old job. Um, and um, Explain that very quickly to people. I know what 360 recruitment is, but a lot of people watching this might not. So a lot of people traditionally think recruitment is, you know, you just recruit for one company or a couple of companies and that's it. Technically that's really like what's called like a delivery agent or a resourcer. So you would be doing like a 180 position, which is just going out and finding candidates for a client. That's it. Yeah. That's your job. 360 recruitment is everything. So you have to go out and find the client, win the business. So win the job, find the candidate, win the candidate, marry the two together. If that candidate is actively looking for a new job opportunity, you need to market that candidate out to some other companies. So you might go out to some colder companies that you haven't worked with before because you've got a really good candidate that'd be a really good fit for their business to help you business develop and vice versa. So you're doing everything, it's everything. You might be doing the job advert, you might do some marketing, you know, it's absolutely every part of the recruitment process, 360. So winning business as in clients, and winning candidates and trying to marry the two together. And a model of some recruitment companies is you might come in as a trainee and we'll do this now. So if a trainee comes in, that trainee will only source for candidates. So we'll call that person a resourcer. And once they've achieved that and they've achieved say so many placements, then they'll start to gradually move into say business development. Now they might go into full 360, they might stay as a delivery if they're good. It's really dependent upon the model really and, and, what's, and what's profitable and working. So. I think um, you can have a business, a lot of recruitment companies will say 360 is dead. And that the idea is that you should have a business which is separated, you know, business developer, someone managing accounts, and then someone going out and winning candidates. That should be the model, you know? And we're sort of gradually moving in that direction. Some of them are 360, some of them are delivery. Um, but you can't always have it perfect that way. And again, it might just it's going to be an element of how do the clients want to work. There are some clients that want that probably like, like the fact that they're speaking to, so obviously the lovely Louise and you've got Tom, both great people I've met over the business. They are, they might like the fact that they're speaking to Tom who knows the candidate, who might knows this, who knows that. Yeah. Everyone's different. It's, yeah. yeah. And it's how you, again, it's like, if you, if you're, a, if, if it, when you've got like a delivery team working on, working with a client, that client might have 200 vacancies. So then you need that, that operation, you need that kind of delivery type operation because you need people full-time working on that client. But in the world of financial planning, there isn't enough vacancies out there to really work that way. You know, you haven't got a client who's got, you know, a shed load of vacancies. It doesn't really work that way. So you tend to be more geared towards 360 in the financial planning world. And you might have some resources that are working as part of the team, but that's their natural progression to get up to 360. Well, let's talk about where you are now as a business. So let's fast forward to the last sort of 12, 18 months. 
Yeah. Um, it's been an exciting time. The company's got to a certain size. You've taken on another project in the in, in your podcast. Um, talk about where the company is now and sort of how you've transitioned okay. into adding the podcast to the business. Yeah. So we finally got the position. So we, we we were in this little sweat box of a of an office downstairs, and gradually over the last few years, we've managed to move up to another floor, took over part of the space, and now taken over more more space. So we've got the space in here to grow the business now to forty people. Yeah, we've got about 18 of, it, 18 of us in here at the moment. We've lost a few because of COVID, which is a shame. But um, yeah, you know, we've got about 18 people in here. So um, where we got the business? So, we, you know, we've got the business working in a way that it's all regionalized. So I've got, um, you know, you mentioned Tom and Louise. Tom, Tom looks after London and the Southeast, and he's one of our, now one of our directors. And he's managing that London and Southeast and looking to build a team there. Louise is doing the same for the Southwest and she's just taken on the Midlands as well. And she's looking to build a team there. So that's really, really good. So myself and Stuart have got these kind of directors, managers that are working with us to want to grow the company with us also. So that's really good, really good. And um, going into this, you know, we've been growing and growing and growing, winning lots of clients um, and and essentially turning over more, which is great. Um, And over the last, say, 12 months we really started finding our feet implementing marketing so i pulled more away from recruitment and started implementing marketing into the business spending a lot of time and a lot of energy on that you know whether that's digital marketing seo video work whatever it is just to get our brand out there and that's worked really well so we get noticed a lot you know a lot of the content that we share out through linkedin for example i've simplified how the job adverts gets posted on our site to be able to drive traffic into our website and that's worked really well and and our brand's getting out there so that's good so that's part of my job as well. Um, but over the last um, three months, I've also taken on um, a podcast. So the Financial Planner Life podcast. And one thing I definitely noticed out there in the financial planning world, there wasn't a great deal of content that was aimed at working within the financial planning industry. That's whether or not you're new to the industry on the outside looking in thinking, I want to become a financial advisor. Um, or you're somebody who's within the industry wanting to progress by learning from others. And I got on a podcast, someone interviewed me on the, on the recruitment roller coaster, and he asked me questions about my career. And the idea was it was a sharing podcast. So if somebody listened in the early stages of their recruitment career, they might hear my story and relate to it or understand that, you know, it takes time to build a business or whatever it might well be. Yeah. So my, my aim was to build this Financial Planner Life podcast, fill the gap where there was nothing there that educated somebody. And bearing in mind the financial planning industry is losing, you know, probably over the next 10 years, a good 15,000 advisors and not many advisors are coming into it. It's not a very... It's, it's not a market that sounds attractive to a young 18, 20, 20 year old, 20 year old coming out of university. So my aim was to kind of make it a bit more interesting and fill that gap and um, also get other people within the industry learning from each other as well and sharing. So I set up the Financial Planner Life podcast. I've been doing that for the last sort of, I thought, sod it, you know, you know, um, COVID happened, lockdown happened. I thought that's probably the perfect time to do it because more people are going to be sat in front of their computer screens. Um, and, I, and I've done that over the last few months and built a little brand around it. And I've really th- thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, the actual podcast itself, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting down with financial planners and I'm learning so much about what they do, better detail um, about what they do. And um, it becomes a really great training tool also for my guys in here because they get to listen to me talking to financial planners and asking them the questions that I ask them, which is, it tends to be a bit more of a personalized, less transactional 
style and approach, a bit like the life-centered financial planning you're hearing so much of at the moment. In fact, I'm working hopefully towards doing a life-centered recruitment proposition. So I start to really dig deep on candidates and giving them the the experience based around their their hopes, dreams, their fears, all that kind of stuff. Not just, I've got a job for you, mate. Can I shove you down it? So So just, just you're you're roughly a square peg and it's roughly a square hole. Yeah. Just keep going. That bad kind of recruitment that you hear, you know, the reason why recruitment consultants have got a bad name, they phone up with, with a crap job and sell it to somebody who's not right for the job. You know, whereas I'm a firm believer, if I sit down with somebody and ask them half an hour to 45 minutes questions about what they actually like about their life, what they dislike about their life, I tend to get to the bottom of actually, right, okay, well, perhaps it's actually you're in the right job, but you just don't get on with your manager. Or, or perhaps you're worried about, you're, you're, worried, you're too fixated on money, when actually, I can tell you right now, you're earning above average. You know, so it's, it's having those types of conversations, but then digging a little bit deeper to understand what's missing what is actually missing from your life and let me see whether or not a job can sort that out for you. Yeah. It's, it, I think um, there's more, there's also more transitions in people move jobs way more obviously than they did yeah. 25, 30, 40 years ago. But I get the feeling that there is a slight change with employers understanding actually we lose money by having to rehire all the time. Oh yeah. So why don't we just create a better environment for people to work in and keep them? Um, These, so, so things like employee benefits have been so huge. I had Simon Kelly on the, on this podcast a few months yeah. ago from Select, and we were talking about um, actually salary is usually not the number one reason for leaving a job. It's 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 overall package. Yeah. So you get these people, and actually you. you so I'm talking about that people don't understand that how much the life insurance can cost, how much critical illness, income protection, um, health plan, maybe full full private healthcare. These things are so important. And by you digging in, you get to understand where where is it is it is it just money or is it actually the full package? Because you can say to people, actually, do you know what? Your full package is worth fifty five k over there, and your, your actual package over here is worth 48, it, whatever it might be. It's, it's helping people understand what's yeah. important to them. Uh, yeah, exactly that. It's about getting, I'm trying to get to the crux of what that person feels that perhaps they might be missing out of their life as well. You know, cause we're all quite, you tend to, especially when you dealing with financial planners, you know, there's, there isn't one fun type of financial planner. You might have somebody who absolutely loves being in an employed role, you know, loves being employed. You might have somebody who's employed, but has this yearn or itch inside them that they're uncomfortable in their job. And that's usually because they're probably quite entrepreneurial and that they want to run their own business. Perhaps they like to have their own control, you know? So it's about sort of explaining to them. It's about identifying how they feel and then explaining to them the options because there isn't just one option in financial planning, for instance, you know, you can be employed, you can be self-employed, you could be an AI, you could be an RI, you could go directly authorized. There are so many different routes that you can go down, but it's the, it's my job is really to kind of explain those routes, explain those, those ways of doing things, but also to explain the realities and not just dangle a carrot in front of them and say, Oh yeah, leave your company and go self-employed, set up your own business. Cause it's going to be really easy where it's not, you know, well, one route can be more, interesting i just wonder what your thoughts are with it with a carrot dangling is that this sort of this hybrid role where they get that they get like an underpin they get a small employed underpin of 
£750-£900 a month and then they have an earn out and commission on top of that at different rates. That seems to be more and more popular for people these days because it gives them that slight bit of security with also the ability to feel a bit entrepreneurial without taking all the risk. But I wonder, is that ever going to satisfy anyone fully? It feels, it, it feels like they're not. I don't really come across that, to be honest with you. Um, you might have some companies such as St. James's Place that offer a retainer for like 12 yeah. months. Um, I, in fact, I had a conversation with a client quite recently. He was like, oh, no, I feel like I should be giving people like a 25K basic and a higher commission structure. And I was like, it's just done. People don't, in recruit, in financial planning, you either want a high basic salary or you want to go self-employed. Yeah. It's two options. I want a higher basic and I don't care too much about the bonus. I'll just do my job properly, but I want the higher basic. Or it is, I want to run my own business. I want to be self-employed and I want to be the master of my own destiny. Those are so the two you, options. Do you think that middle option that, as you say, you don't grow as much, but I know it still exists because I speak, I speak to people all the time and maybe it's because I'm speaking to people who are thinking about leaving a, a, leaving a role. They're leaving a, a full-time employed role, a full salary role. Yeah. And they're just, it's that little bit of fear, as you say, it's the underpin on the retainer for the first year. It just feels like to me that it doesn't really satisfy anyone, but it, it's maybe to allay their fears of going out on their own. Yeah, exactly. Maybe that. they've got yeah. a partner at home, a, a wife or a husband that says, no, oh, you're taking a big risk. Yeah, it just gives them gives them that ability to transition because not everybody has a huge amount of savings either. You know, financial planners apparently aren't the greatest <laughs> at their own financial planning, and um, so yeah, a lot of them haven't got the savings. But it also, if a company is willing to say, if a company's saying to you, "Come and join us, self-employed. We believe you, and you. We think you're going to do really well, and you've got all this, and you've got all that." And by the way, here's uh, you know, five grand a month, non-debtable or something for the first 12 months or debtable for the first 12 months because we want to, we want to invest in you, mm. you know, and we believe that you're going to do well. So again, it's going to make that person feel more comfortable making that transition. And you're right. If there's a partner at home who's worried about the mortgage or whatever and stepping into the unknown, which it is, then it's going to make that a little bit easier. So it's not unusual for some of these companies to offer a small retainer to get them on board um, but ultimately there's down, and again, I always say this to the financial advisor, you need to write down what your business plan is because you can't, you can't run a business off the back of a retainer. You know, you no. can't run a, you know, you need to know where you, what your A clients are, what your B clients are, what your C clients are, what your restricted covenants look like, where, what your business development looks like, who's your introducers, what's your brand, what are you going to do in your personal brand? Who's going to do your marketing? All those types of things that you need to look at because those are the things that are going to absolutely screw you up in the first 12 to 12 to 18 months so you, look anyone who's just heard that last 90 second uh, comment from you gets that you understand the industry so where do you see the industry being um in the next well let's let's see what how do you think covid's going to affect it and then where do you think the industry's going to be in two years time how will COVID affect it? I don't, um, from a, from what perspective, from a, well, I, I've obviously, so I think I'm not a market analysis. So I could, yeah, I could not. So I think, I think, I think let's, let's, let's hope and assume that the, the markets don't dip too much, but we all, we all know they're probably going to have another dip at some point in the, in the not too distant future. Yeah. With that, with that is going to come uncertainty in the market. Maybe people holding back on investing this, that, and the other. There will be some job losses across the country. We know that the, yeah. the, all the all all the indication is showing that between first um, of August and the first of November, when the different types of furlough end in their different staged amounts, that we could see up to sort of 
1.3, 1.5 million worth of redundancies or, or dismissals. So that's kind of a given. It's going to affect, it's going to affect, do you think that we're going to have more people moving into self-employed roles because the, because there are fewer people offering salaried positions? We've already spoken about how many people are leaving the industry. Do you think people will go, well, do you know what? I'll go and have a look at another job and, and will, will we get more people entering financial services because of this? I think, I think you might see a speed up of sales of business. So yeah, where you've got the average age of somebody being say 55 years old at the moment in the industry, um, there, I think you're, you might well see a speed up of people looking to exit. So just thinking, you know, I just, I'll, I'll sell now. So I think that might happen. Um, we haven't seen a massive slowdown during this whole period of hiring. Um, and I think as an industry, financial planning hasn't put as many people on furlough as other industries. No. So that's happened. Um, some of the changes I definitely will see is home working. I think this innate need to want everybody in the office, especially within financial planning, probably because it's quite an old school type mentality. You've got a lot of younger people coming through in support functions, power planning, all that kind of stuff. And um, I think what you're going to see is a lot of these guys expecting to be able to have that flexi time and working from home. Yeah. Um, the same with some of these financial advisors that have to come into the office. I think, you know, that will change. I think um, trust and everything and allowing people to work from home using Microsoft Teams, all that type of thing. I think we'll make, we'll, we'll make it, um, we'll, would allow people to work from home more. So I think there's a big expectation on people wanting to work from home. I saw St. James's place are expecting everybody now to come back into the office. They put a, put, put a, put a bit of marketing out quite recently. Yeah. And I read on the marketing post, one girl was working for SJP and she was saying, I'm quite uncomfortable about going back. I think it's too soon. And then obviously people were saying, well, you know, how can you, can you not do your job working from home? when you've got all these kind of outsourced power planning companies that are showing and proving that you can do it that way. So what, what, what I, I found odd about, I actually read that article. What I found odd about that. And I've read dozens of articles is, is that, Oh, you've got to come back. You've been doing your job perfectly well from home, but we want you back. But yeah. I also understand, and I have huge respect and sympathy for big companies like SJP who've got, well, let, you kind of want to get everyone back in and just sort of reassess where things are. And I think yeah. that I think this is this is a comment to all employees. If your boss or your company is asking you to come back in the office, if you don't feel comfortable because of coronavirus, that's one thing. But if you just don't want to, because you will like working from home, it's worth remembering that it's a difficult thing to say that people actually signed up to work in the office. That was the job they took. Yep. Um, you didn't take a home working job. Now I think like employers like us, we've got one of our team who's made it really clear that they want to continue to work from home. Um, and actually we're going to facilitate that. They took a five day a week office job. Um, and they are no, they are no longer in that role. They're now doing half a day a week in the office, four and a half days a week from home. And that suits us because they're able to perform and they've got a different role to everybody else in the company. And that's great. So there, there are going to be these opportunities. And I think what will happen is you'll see a lot of firms bring people back, reassess. They'll have been having conversations at top, top, at top level about getting people back in, assessing what they need from them, and then, then letting them go back home and transition so. into that. I think, so. I, I think people are going to panic and go, oh, what, so-and-so's bringing me straight back in? 
no, they're a business. They've got a plan. They want to do things the right way. Just, just let's just wait and see before we take the internet and start moaning. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think, um, well, we're doing it, you know, we're gradually bringing people back in. Now the consensus in here is that people like it. Um, they also, you know, they're not having to sit in like hour long traffic at the moment or anything or, or whatever. And I, I see a place for it. Basically I see a place for both. You know, I think, um, as employers, we have to be very trusting, um, and you've got to question yourself as why do you feel that you need to have people in the office? One of mine was culture. Like how do you create a culture when everyone's working from home? That's a big concern. Yeah. How do I get trainees listening to experienced members of staff if experienced members of staff are at home? How am I supposed to build a team mentality, you know, team culture? And it's difficult to do when you're home based and everything. And, and again, it's like, the idea in my head is like, right, you can work from home. That's not a problem. You can work from home. It's not a problem, but you can work from home all the time. Yeah. You know, I expect you to be in the office and you know, there's, there's going to be a commitment to you being in the office. And also it's going to be, pro, you know, it's going to be output based, you know, <laughs> instead of sitting there worrying about individuals, what they're doing, because I'll tell you what, when you've got, when you're surrounded by people and you tune into it and then you think, what's that person doing? What's that person doing? You spend your whole time as, a, as an owner thinking is people take, is people sitting there not doing any work today. When they're not there, out of sight, out of mind. Mm. And actually, if I just then look at what they've done on the output side, then it's easier, isn't it? I can just go, right, well, what have you, you've done bugger all today, or you've done bugger all this week. What, what, what is it you've actually done? If someone's delivering, why should I even care what that person's up to and what that person's doing? The one thing I worry about is this culture thing. It's like, if I'm trying to build a business, I need people in the office. I need people to be bouncing off of each other and learning yeah. from each other. Because that, my that, learning comes from listening and, and observing better people than me. Colleague-based learning as part of culture, I think is being missed completely as a benefit of having an office. Yeah. So Dan asked a question yesterday. G answered it. I didn't even get a chance to answer it. Well, I, which is great. Jackie wants to know something. Dan's answered it. Bouncing off each other. Oh, how, how does this document work? Callum gets up and shows them. You can't do that at home. That speed, that speed in the office is brilliant. But equally, there are benefits you say from, I do look up it. I, the other day I was like, what are you doing over there, Dan? Because what are you doing? Uh, and it takes me away from what I'm doing, which I could just look at the output. So it's... And you it's have to question bit... ourselves as well then in that yeah. respect, because I've had to learn a lot about myself over the last three months. Um, and working on my own has been... I loved it. <laughs> I've absolutely loved it. I'm, you know, the benefit to me being in an environment where I am easily distracted, I am, whether that's a thought coming into my head that's negative about something, like a fear, people aren't doing their job and the business is going to go under or whatever i can be distracted in that way but i can also be distracting because it's my personality i can start talking to people and all of that and what i found within the first couple of weeks of lockdown was i was on my own i was just always camping myself out in the office for the last three months and um i i was on my own and i realized that all these thoughts that were racing around my head were my own they were nothing to do with anybody else around me i used to blame other people but actually it was me and then I started having to deal with that and, and really go, bloody hell, I'll take some responsibility here. So I'm picking everything. And then when I did it and I, I did some work on that, I was like, oh, wow, you know, brilliant. I'm not so bothered about what other people think anymore. I'm not so bothered about me trying to mind read other people or anything like that. I just do what I'm doing and I'll focus on what I'm doing and I'll trust that those other people are doing what they're doing. And it made me feel so much more comfortable. 
it made me feel so much calmer. And that came from separating the office, not having anybody in here. So I think there is definitely a place for both. Now, when people come in now, I love it. They come in, you know, we bounce off each other. You can get a lot of work done within a short space of time when they're in here. But it's a place for both. And I think within financial planning, that's where you'll see it, is that people will be expecting a bit of both. They'll be thinking, right, well, I've just showed you for three months I can work from home. Why have I got to travel an hour and a half each way into London every day for the same salary that someone's getting in Bristol? You know, people are, people are going to be a bit more aware of the time they waste. And I think rightfully so. We should totally be, you know, time is the most, our most valuable resource and we should be the most effective and, and happiest people we possibly can be. And you can't be happy spending 10 hours a week or, you know, pointless bloody meetings and pointless driving around or when you can jump on a Zoom meeting and have a chat with somebody. You know, I've sat and got on a train, go up to London for a meeting that's last half an hour, just because that's what you spoke. That's what you're supposed to do. It's bollocks, absolute yeah. bollocks. And I can get on a, I can get on a Zoom, have a great conversation, build a great rapport, and and I'm happy. You know, so I think you know when you went back to what makes people tick, it's about making that person happy and understanding what that individual, how that individual is. And part of my job as well is making companies recognise and getting them to realise that actually you're. Your, your, the, your benefits package or what you're offering somebody in respect of what they're looking for from an employer is wrong. Actually, what they want is flexibility. If they can trust, if you can trust them, you'll get the best employee, employee going because you're giving them 10 hours of time with their kids again or something, you know? And, that, and, that, and that's just different, isn't it? It's just such an important difference for people to understand that what people makes them tick is so important for companies to get but also for the individual what makes you tick because the amount of people i know that set up on their own in any industry because they want the freedom to go and do such and such well if that's what you're doing again i'll say i say it all the time i'll speak to the audience if you honestly think setting up a business on your own is a lifestyle choice you're crazy absolutely crazy because you're going to work harder longer you've ever worked in your entire life for less money for the first three to five years and you'll be stressed out do you agree sam yeah horrible like it's it's, 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 i I wouldn't say it's been enjoyed it's not been an enjoyable experience for me at all you've got to enjoy you've got to enjoy eating shit and having the grind because that is a large part of it um and and i think that's important what you're saying about speaking to people because I know a number of really, really, really good IFAs that are self-employed. I'm not going to say the names on here because it's really unfair because I know so many IFAs are going to mix people out. Look, how many, how many IFA introducers we got? Talking about the amount of IFAs I, I know. Hang on. Bloody mouse is not working. 172 IFA introducers. So for me to try and remember every IFA, it'd be a bloody nightmare. Um, but some of them the work they put in, like the one guy I, I got to know him really, really well, he's put in you know, on his own for like six years. Um, in those six years, he's, he was qualified, but he's done, his, he's done all his chartered exams in those six years. He's gone from having no clients, literally left on his own with hopefully a few warm clients that would come across. He had a restricted covenant, so he couldn't take his old clients for two years. But as he said, a lot of those he couldn't take ever because they were introduced by his foot by the old firm. So he only had about 1.9, 2.1 million to bring across anyway. So it wasn't it wasn't um, retirement money at all. 
Um, and he's built up a 52 million AUM business. Nice. On his own, well, with one other person, one, one, an office support. And you think, I know, I know he ate shit and grind and grind and grind, grind and grind and grind and grind all day for the first three and a half, four years. While at the same time being a father of a young child, um, dealing with crap we all have to deal with, having a relationship, all the other stuff that's going on in the background. Like, it isn't easy, is it? And, and as you say, part of what you're doing with that life-centered stuff, which is so different, is getting people to go, is that honestly what you want? You say you want it, but let me ask you some questions because it really isn't for everyone. And like, I've said this before and I say, I'm honest and open about it. I've loved building my two businesses. But if people don't think there are moments where I've gone home and gone, should I just have a job? Yeah. I look, should I just have a job? I turned down a job with a very, very large um, insurer four and a half years ago. Six-figure salary, the works. But I had to be in London three days a week. And I knew I didn't want to be in London three days a week. I knew that in my heart. That was one thing I knew. If you don't think there's been at least a dozen times you've gone, fuck, should I take a night job? This is bloody hard. But that's what people have got to understand. And it's great to hear that that's what you're doing. How, what sort of things do you, without rehashing the same comments, what sort of things do you do, do with people to really unpick that? To unpick it, to understand what they, what yeah, they want. Because, because you and I get that. We know how the grind can be. Yeah, I, what I tend to look at is I will look at, so what do I, what sort of things do I ask, say, the, the candidate yeah, to understand so, what they're doing? you going, yeah, I want to be self-employed, I want to do this, one that. Well, I ask why. Yeah. Majority of the time, I ask why. What, what, what is it about being self-employed? Why, why do you want to be self-employed? Um, or saying vice versa with employed. What, what is it about being employed that, that you like? Um, what do you think, you know, where do you see yourself in the next three to five years? what's lacking in your role right now. If you could change something about your position right now, or if you could change something about your life around work, what would it be? How do you fit in with your current company and your peers? Um, mainly sort of, it's usually around what's lacking. You know, people either want something or yeah, pretty much like something's either being taken away or they want something, you know, that's usually it. Um, so you get down to the crux of what's missing um, and then I sort of say like, you know, well, you live in Haywards Heath, but you're traveling into London. How long does that take you? What do you think about the, What do you think about the commute? And I might talk to them about what relationships do you hold? What are your types of relationships you have at the moment? You know, are they your relationships or are they someone else's? How much of your business that you've written over the last two or three years has come from you? You know, how much of expectation does your employer currently have on you to do your job? And how does that make you feel? Where do you see yourself? And the good one is like where you see yourself in the next three to five years. How do you feel about running your own business? Um, multiple types of questions. But ultimately, when you start to kind of dig a little bit deeper and understand the areas where they're quite weak, unearthing sort of the weaknesses, if you like, yeah. That tends to open somebody up to be a bit more honest about their current situation. Ultimately, a big part of what drives people is money. So it's about, right, okay, 
you know, I've had someone recently who's quite in a very senior position, very qualified, but was earning way below the, the average in the UK. Mm. And that, that really grinded him because he was an ambitious person. And to know that he's worked really hard, worked his way up and all that and got his qualifications and got to a good level, but wasn't earning as much as say somebody at another company. It really got to him, you know, and it was, it was, and it was like, well, well, why is it got to you? Mm. You know, why is that bothering you so much? What is it you think that that's going to do to make you feel better? So it's about understanding what that person's, it person's motivators are internally as well. And um, just trying to get on a more human level with them, understand those fears and worries and concerns. And some will open up to you and some of them won't. Some of them just be like, I'm absolutely, some people just, they know what they want and they're just on it. Um, or some people can get stuck in a job for five, 10 years and say the same things over and over and over again, but do nothing about it. I found that a lot, a few of the people I speak to, uh, as you know, I speak to so many IFAs all the time. And I hear a lot of people moan about things. A lot of people really happy. Like one guy, he was, he, he was talking to me just, just about life in general, about Fermi is and he was moaning like hell and saying he's going to go on his own. And I was just talking to him, just chatting like, like we do and and I, and I was like I don't sure it's being employed that's the problem I think it's the fact you do a, a 90 minute commute each way yeah. maybe find maybe find an employed job locally that pays you two grand a year less and just don't have the commute because yeah. actually he was earning best part of 60 grand he was really he loved working for someone he didn't really he had no business acumen he was he was what I call a good practitioner he wasn't a businessman he should never run his own business um because again, that's another thing people don't realise that running, being a self-employed IFA doesn't mean you are still running your business. It means you're so it's still being an IFA. It means you're also running a business. You've got accounts to do. Yeah. You've got marketing to do. You maybe got HR to do. You've got insurances to sort out. All the legal stuff that goes with it. There's so much. There's, there's so many sides. Yeah, there's so many sides. There's so many sides to it. You know, if I've got somebody that's a direct, who runs a directly authorized firm, I can talk to that person about all the compliance they have to deal with, all the stress and all, all, yeah. all of that. You know, and um, Gabriel returns and, and whatnot. And yeah. and you say to them, well, why are you why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Why don't you just keep the branding, keep everything about your business, but, but go and be an AR of a firm or take on all the PI costs and everything else? You know, yeah. to to why, why are you doing it to yourself? What is it? And people just like that control, you know? Some people just like that control of running their business. Some people just feel like it's like a, oh, it's kind of like a failure if I then do that. And it's like, well, no, it's not. It's like you're, you're letting go of the shit that you hate doing. Like, what do you dislike doing right now? What do you enjoy doing? Let's double down on the things you enjoy doing and get rid of the things you don't like doing. Pay it away because you're going to do a hell of a lot more business because you're going to be happy. And, and like... Um, People, it's like when people look at like social media and they look at somebody else's social media and they're doing really, it looks like they're out there all the time and they're, you know, putting content out there and their, their, their brand is perfect. That takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. So it has to come from somewhere. And they usually do that by, by either outsourcing it to somebody to take care of like all the mundane admin tasks. But people don't really understand that. They're in their little world and they think they've got to do everything. And I know that because I've been there. I've sat in my little world thinking, I can't spend money out on that. I can't go and ask that person. I can't ask that person for help. I can't outsource it there because I've got to do it all myself. And you end up just blowing your brains out and getting depressed. And, and like, it's when you let go and you think, well, okay, 
I don't have to do that myself. I can outsource that or I can ask somebody's advice, ask somebody a question, you know, that sort of thing. And then all of a sudden you, it, it, it releases from you and um, you realize that, oh my God, I've been trying to do too much. And I think that's what can sometimes happen with people that run businesses. We do too much because we don't like to show that we can't do it. Yeah. And um, people, well, I, I would love just because of the conversation we've had before, um, for today, before the before we start pressing record about our mental health and yeah. about other things, I'd love to get you on again in a couple of weeks and just get us to open. We can just open up, open up the can of worms that is our mental health. Um, but I want to just touch on that part of the self because that's where you were going with that conversation about the fear and about the things and about the people aren't very good at saying this hasn't worked. I failed. Because they're yeah, scared pride, of failure. Yeah, yeah I, I look. I got my own issues with it, which will open up in another podcast, and I don't really. I, I kind of know where some stem from. Um, but what I'd really love to touch on, and but look, if anyone knows me, and truly knows me, they know the reason I'm self-employed is because this is a pride thing, and I want to show I can do it because I get mm. it, it drives me. Mm. It drives me, which is weird because it's also the thing that scares me the most and makes me feel down at times. So yeah, because as human beings, we're mental. And I, and I, I use the phrase all the time. We are, we are, we make some of the weirdest decisions when we know they're a wrong decision, but there we are. Um, yep. How do you get that across to people? Just that very last bit on look, if you are going to go self-employed, the word self is really important. You've got to know, you talked earlier about knowing yourself before we used to press record. But also, you are on your own a lot of the time, very alone. So, how do you? What was the question? How do you get that across to people who are going self-employed? You're you've got to know yourself, and you are alone. There isn't much support. Share my. I, I, one thing I do is I share my experience, uh, and I also share my um, experience of helping other financial advisors as well. So I talk about a lot of the pitfalls, the problems that you're going to come up against. Mm. So I try to I try to dig in at the problems as well. Um, I could sit there and just talk about all the positives all the time, but I don't think people buy in and trust you. Um, so I talk about a lot of the things that can go wrong and the, the you know the the yeah the problems that you're going to come up against, um, and getting them to look at themselves and saying like you know how strong is your marketing, you know. How strong are your client relationships? Um, uh, what is your work ethic like? Have you worked from home before? You know. So for people who are watching this and are aware, the reason that Sam's asking how strong are your client relationships is a lot of IFAs, when they leave another firm, they're hoping their clients come with them. And that relies on having a strong relationship. And I know, I can give the names of a good number of IFAs, thought they had, 50 million's worth strong strong relationship sam and it turns out they had seven million yeah well, that's pretty much how it is we always take whatever it is just half it and then half it again because yeah. that's the reality of it and um it depends you know if someone's currently employed sorry if current someone's currently self-employed and it's just moving from one self-employed proposition to another then and they've got you know a contract that says they can novate their clients no problem yeah. that's easy peasy the difference is if someone's working for a business and they're employed they're getting a bit well i want to set my own business now and then you've got the restrictions in place and you've got you know have your clients got a relationship because 
the bank give them a lovely black bank card and a checkbook and a black pen or do you hold the relationship because you have a beer with them down the pub or you talk to them about football or whatever you know mm. so are they advocates you know that's the key thing so it's about digging that little bit deeper with them and to say look these are the things that can go wrong but you know at the same time no pain no gain you know i'm not putting you off here what i'm trying to explain to you is this is the realities of it but i've got to align you with a company that are going to support you because you're going to need support so when someone's saying i'm going to go directly authorize and do it all myself i'm like that's probably quite risky why don't you just set yourself up as an AR first underneath a firm and see how you get on for the first 12 to 24 months. And then if you want to go directly authorized after that, you can do that. But by doing that, you're going to relieve a lot of the pressure around compliance and marketing and databases and all that kind of stuff. Well, while finding your feet, building your, while like, finding your you feet, can, yeah. you can allow someone else to do a lot of the grunty shit work that you don't want to do yeah. while you're, while you're doing the hard work you need to do. Yeah. And, you know, this is my job, you know, and it's a big part of the financial plan of life. So for me, the financial plan of life also is about me. It's a naturally evolving brand. It's my brand. It's a naturally evolving brand. I want to have a proposition I want to have a, a recruitment proposition, if you like, or a career coaching proposition that's different from other recruitment agencies. Whether you're a client and you're looking to hire I offer digital marketing recruitment solutions, branded recruitment. I'll work with you. Um, I'll get you on the podcast. I'll get yourself out there. All that kind of stuff. It's a completely different approach to say contingency recruitment, which is I'm going to slap a CV in front of you and hope for the best. I want to build their brand, give them feedback on the market, make them stand out, get their articles into magazines, do a little bit of SEO, video, whatever. That's, about, that's one side of it. The other side of it is then giving the candidate the better experience the best experience I possibly can. And I'm even toying with the facts and I've pitched this to a few people that I charge a candidate. So if you're a candidate that's serious about leaving your job or looking for a better proposition, then if you want the best coaching or the best guidance, then you're going to have to pay for it because not only not many recruitment companies will do that, you know, and for me to be able to give the best service to that individual and the most honest service, you have to be able to like, take a little bit from that person as well. And people have been quite receptive of that. Yeah, I think that um, what you've just said only sounds odd because it's not done. If it would always be, if it had always been, I'll pick a number, you engage the recruitment consultant who gives you X, Y, and Z coaching to get X, Y, and Z to somewhere you need to be and you pay a thousand pounds for that. And that had always always been the way then you then people then that would always be the way because what you're suggesting is so new that's the only reason there'll be any pushback because actually what you're suggesting isn't really outlandish well no because if, if, if you're really serious about making the right choice choice in your career right you're really serious about making the right choice in your career you certainly wouldn't put your cv out to multiple recruitment agencies because what they're going to do is ping your cv out there as quick as they possibly can because it's a it's a it's speed. That's all. The, that's why people get a you know peed off with recruitment consultants. You need to sit down with somebody who's going to pick your brain and really get to the point of what it is you truly want to do. Now it might be that you walk away from that meeting that you don't leave your job. <laughs> you know, you don't do it. But that's the outcome of that meeting, and that's the honest response. It's not me sitting there going, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but. I want someone to walk away and go. Oh, fucking hell. Thank God for that. Thanks, Sam. That was a good hour. And actually, I didn't realize how good I've got it. I'm like, oh, that's fine. Well, that's why you pay the money. You know, yeah, and sometimes like, I get like, somebody that I place and I make a fee and sometimes I, I don't, you know, but, but at least I get my, my time paid for. 
then the quality of what you will do will go up because there'll be 100%. less reliance on trying to fit square pegs, square holes, square pegs, round holes. It's all about honesty, you know, and, um, you know, people say recruitment consultants aren't honest. I will happily, I'm honest as I'm, I'm always honest, you know, that's just the way it is. I'm, I'm, I said this before and I said, to you, I'm very lucky. I work, I've got some really good recruitment consultant friends across different, across different firms, um, across different industries. And there are some really, really good people out there. There mm. are sharks, but there are sharks in every industry. Um, I'm very conscious that we've flown past the time we had allotted and um, you've got, I, I'm running a CPD session. I, I'm going for, if, you, if people think this, this was boring because I can be, I can drone on, try coming on my CPD session in, in, in <laughs> 45 minutes time where I'm going to talk about wills and trust for an hour and a half. Oh, that sounds fun, mate. Oh, yeah, it does. Right. Sam, thank you so much for this, mate. I really appreciate it. I'm going to press Sorry? stop. I'm going to stop the recording now. We're going to catch up two minutes afterwards. People don't need to hear what we're going to talk about. It'll be mainly golf. Um, <laughs> so thank you, everybody, for listening. My name's Ben Mason. This has been the KingCast. If you need a will, trust, power of attorney, you know where to come. The name is behind me. And uh, thank you, Sam, for all of your time today. No worries. Cheers.